Well, good morning. A few uh, quick announcements. Uh, One is I am going to be holding another inquirers class, which is our new members class. And if you are interested, if you know someone who may be interested, uh, get in touch with me because I will I'll design it. Well, I'll schedule it and we'll figure it all out, depending on who's interested, how many. So let me know if you'd like to uh, come be a part of that class. Now, um, notice also to tomorrow, I believe, is the last day. If you've been filling up your baby bottles with, with change, uh, tomorrow, I believe, is when you need to, to get those bottles in. And then Thursday is our first thing along with Amy. It's going to be Thursday night at 7 o'clock from 7 to 8, and we'll see how that uh, goes. A number of you have been sending in your favorite uh, songs you'd like to be uh, sung, and she'll try to fit as many as in as she as she can. But um, I'll be sending information. You'll be getting info and email about what buttons to click. It'll be the same way, really, in which you were before had been live streaming with the church. So we'll get that info to you probably tomorrow or Tuesday. Now, George uh, Roundtree is going to come up. He is the chairman of the uh, Pastor Search Committee, and he's going to give a report. Good morning. Your Pastor Search team has already held several meetings, and we're doing the preliminary work that's required before you can start the search process. We've contacted the PCA Stated Clerk's Administrative Office. Stated Clerk is really the head of the PCA, and their administrative staff is there to help people and help search teams. Uh, They're accumulating names for us of potential pastor candidates. In addition, we're going to be using the talents of Dr. Paul Koistra, who's a former PCA seminary uh, president. And there, uh, you know, and he is very versed in the PCA, more than any of the rest of us could ever hope to be. If you know of a good PCA pastor that we should consider, please get their name and contact information to somebody on the search team. Our conversations with the uh, administrative staff will confirm one more time, on average it takes 18 months to have a new pastor in place. A few shorter, a few longer, but 18 months is the average. The search team leadership uh, is Linda Martin is the prayer warrior, Emma Anderson is the secretary, Lou Tepper is the uh, vice chair, and I'm the chair. We need your input. You received a survey roughly 10 days ago. We've had a few of them come back, but we really need your input to take the time, fill it out, send it in, and have it in to us by Tuesday. Beyond Tuesday, it won't be counted. We plan to have regular updates. Now, regular 
maybe every few weeks, it may be a month, it may be longer, depending on what the accomplishment of a period might be. We'll talk to you about everything in the process other than people. We uh, can't do that, but we will tell you the kinds of things we're doing. Thank you. Prepare our hearts for worship. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. And yet this I call to mind, and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Father, we thank You so much for this great promise of Your presence with us. You tell us that You inhabit the praises of Your people. We invite You now to be with us. Thank You that You are. Thank You that You live inside of us by Your Holy Spirit. Be honored and glorified this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship in song.
We praise you, O Lord, our Redeemer, Creator, verses 1 and 3 in the bulletin. Confession, chapter 8, section 1. Let us read together. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and human beings. As the mediator, he is the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world. God gave to him from all eternity a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Let us pray, beginning with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we... Thank you and praise you that we may come before you and and call you our Father because of the work of God the Son, because of the work of God the Holy Spirit who has entered into us, and now we have been adopted as your children. We pray that we will honor your name and our worship this morning. We pray that we may serve your kingdom and we pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ when his kingdom will be consummated. And may we at this time, though, be found faithful in our service for that kingdom. We pray that we will be those who will do your will here upon this earth as it is in heaven, that we will do your will in our actions, but also in our minds and in by our very hearts. Give to us our daily bread, the bread that we will need this morning to hear, to feed upon your word. And then the physical bread that we need and the health that we need. And we pray for your provisions for this country 
and for this community in such a time as this. We pray that you would forgive us of our debts and that you would give us such a spirit as to forgive our debtors. All the more that we would grow and be as our Heavenly Father, who is a God of mercy. Lead us not into temptation, but all the more we pray that you will deliver us from the evil one. Uh, deliver us uh, from the lures, the temptations of this world, from the weakness of our flesh. We pray this acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> 
seated. I invite you now to uh, turn in your Bibles or to uh, use the passage that you, Scripture you'll find in your bulletin. Although some of you, what you may want to do if you have your Bibles, the, the first passage of Scripture I'm going to read is from Genesis 14, uh, 17 to 20, if you want to be able to follow along with that. You know, the primary difficulty, perhaps you've done this, of giving someone a Bible who has never read the Bible, is that they will begin at the beginning. Now, the creation story, don't get me wrong, is very interesting. And then there are more interesting stories. But however interesting they may be, that first-time reader is going to begin to wonder, what's the point? Why am I getting these stories? And particularly when they get into Exodus and all that stuff about laws and the temple design, and then they get into Leviticus, you know, very few can make it past that point. Now, you might have the same problem. I mean, you read the Old Testament, but you wonder, what is the point of all these stories? Well, our text this morning is going to lead us to that answer. Now, Let's look at Abraham for a moment, which is what Genesis 14 is about. You know Abraham is a man of faith. Have you ever thought of Abraham? Did you ever know him as a general or a captain of a military force? Well, he was at one time. Abraham, or Abram at that time, uh, learned that his nephew Lot and, and family had been Uh, captured and taken away when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated in battle. So Abraham gathers his men together, 318 of them. They pursue the captors, overtake them, defeat them, rescue Lot, and reclaim all the other captives and get the belongings back. Now, our scripture text in Genesis 14 picks up from there in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, to meet Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melodech, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then that's the full story of Melchizedek. He's not mentioned again until there's an obscure reference in Psalm 110 by David goes like this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. No other reference in the Old Testament, nor in the New Testament, until we come to our passage this morning. And our author, in chapter 7, is going to develop a majestic theology of Jesus as a priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll move more into that theology in the next two Sundays. But for now, our author is setting the stage. 
And his purpose here is to demonstrate the superiority of this mystery priest over who was and still is the most revered man in Jewish history. And that is Abraham, the father of the Jews. Now we'll pick up on our text in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, or met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. All right, I mentioned that he's making his argument that of the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham. And he does this in three ways. One is looking at the meaning of Melchizedek's name and title. Then Melchizedek's position as king and priest. And then he takes it to a higher, kind of a strange level, to the mysterious lack of a history for Melchizedek. Now let's consider, first of all, Melchizedek's name and title. Now, the name means king of righteousness. Names were often given to define the nature of the person. And that certainly is in the mind of our author. Melchizedek's name, as he's noted, means king of righteousness. And he is saying that indicates that Melchizedek truly was a righteous man, a righteous king. Now, furthermore, he was king of Salem, which means, indicates that he was a man of peace. That's what Salem means. It's the Hebrew term shalom. Okay. So, righteous and of peace. Now, be thinking, who else do you know? Could you attribute those two characteristics? Now, let's look at Melchizedek's position, which is twofold. First of all, he was a king, as we noted, the king of the city Salem, which would become the future Jerusalem. So, and then he has the added role of priest. This is unusual. A king might perform uh, some priestly duties, but that's, that's rare and it certainly is not appropriate for a Hebrew king. But Melchizedek, is fully a priest. Now, Abraham is neither king nor priest. But again, who comes to your mind who is both king and priest? And then let's consider that odd observation made by our author about Melchizedek's mysterious origins and his subsequent history. Using the fact that there's actually no information given about these things, our author makes a startling claim. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, there's no question then, is it, who he wants us to compare Melchizedek to. But has he gone too far? I mean, 
Is he claiming that Melchizedek is eternal without beginning or end? There certainly is a lot of speculation about who he was. But no, he's not doing that. What he is doing is he's demonstrating how Melchizedek is a figure type for Jesus. Look, authors often do this uh, in their fiction. They'll have characters who symbolize a type of person or who symbolizes an idea. R.C. Sproul wrote a college paper on how the white whale Moby Dick is a figure, is represents a type for God. And Ahab is the type of figure who symbolizes man in his hatred of God. He wants to destroy the omnipotent God. Well, our author has Melchizedek symbolizing the Son of God and in particular his eternal priesthood. Now, his intent right now through all of this is to show the superiority of Jesus over Abraham. See, he'd already done this. You might remember at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, demonstrated the superiority of Jesus over the angels. Then in chapter 3, he demonstrates how Jesus is greater than Moses. Well, now he's doing the same thing here with Abraham. And he's using Melchizedek, who represents Christ as a type for Christ to do so, as he analyzes that uh, Genesis story. Now, let's continue in our text, beginning in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, those, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who hid the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, our author wants to note here that there are two actions in that Genesis account that demonstrate the superiority of Moses, I mean, of Melchizedek over Abraham. One is by the tithes, and the other is by the blessing. So let's look first of all at the tithe. Receiving tithes was the prerogative of the priests. The descendants of Levi made reference here is, is a way of saying the tribe of Levi. That tribe was set apart as the priestly tribe. Now, Melchizedek, as a king, he might come out there and he offers refreshment for Abraham. That's what a king does. He's generous and he's a gracious host. But Melchizedek would never have felt an obligation to give a tithe 
of his possessions to Abraham. Because the superior is never under an obligation to the inferior. That's why Abraham has, feels an obligation to give that tithe. Now, our author ups the ante, so to speak. He's also going to prove that Melchizedek's priesthood is even greater than that of Levi's. The priests of Levi are mere mortals. Melchizedek testified as, uh, is testified as one who still lives. So that was that contrast there. Now, what he's referring to here is that, is that statement by David of being a priest forever. Now, furthermore, he makes the case that because Levi is a descendant of Abraham, you could say that Levi paid the tithe to Melchizedek through his ancestor Abraham. So that is, that's the tithe. Then there is the blessing. As he states clearly here, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So, for example, a father may bless his son. The son does not bless the father. A king might bless his people. The people do not, in turn, bless the king. Now, the superior can be blessed by the praise of the inferior. So we also read here of Melchizedek blessing God. He is praising God. Just like a son can praise his father and therefore be a blessing to his father. But this concept of bestowing a blessing onto another, that is the act of a superior over an inferior. Now, can you think of a priest king to whom we owe tribute? Can you think of a priest king who has bestowed on his people immeasurable blessing? Now, the answer is easy. The lesson here, of course, is that Jesus Christ is the true Melchizedek. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. By his blood, he has made his people righteous. He has reconciled them to God for an everlasting peace. Jesus Christ is the priest of the Most High God. He is the mediator between man and God. He is the priest who has offered the one true sacrifice. He is the priest who even now represents us before God in the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we the people owe more than a tithe. Indeed, we owe him our whole lives. Jesus Christ is the one who has bestowed on his people eternal blessing, our salvation, our adoption as children of God, our glorious inheritance that still awaits us. Jesus Christ is the priest of the Most High God, for he himself is the Most High God. The mysterious priest in Genesis what our author is, is, is communicating to us, depicts the far more mysterious divine high priest who really does have no beginning. 
and will never have an end. Whom we ourselves testify as still lives, not because of some obscure reference that we have found in a psalm somewhere, but because he is the priest king who died for us, who was buried, who rose again from the dead, who has ascended on high. I mean, is this not a glorious lesson? And would it have ever occurred to you when you were reading that passage in Genesis to make that kind of link between this strange person, Melchizedek, and Jesus Christ? Well, our author has. It has excited him. And he's already been making these kind of links in his letter. He's already talked about Moses. Moses is a faithful servant to God's house of Israel. Well, Jesus is a greater Moses, faithful over God's house of Jesus' followers of the elect. That rest of the promised land, it symbolizes the rest of our salvation and of the glory that still awaits us. The Sabbath, Jesus is the Sabbath rest for us. The temple, the the holy of holies in that temple, they are depicting the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy of holies, for which our high priest has ascended on high and has gone in there for us. Now, our author is going to be doing more of this as we move through the letter. And he's trying to teach his readers and teach us how to look back to the Old Testament and see Jesus. Now, we, we tend to, to, when we go to the Old Testament, we look for, for prophecies for Jesus. And there are many. But finding Jesus is not limited to finding prophecies. A verse here, maybe a verse there. It's the whole of Scripture that is telling the story of Jesus. And that's what's so marvelous about the Bible. When you have this collection, you think about it, of 66 books of all different sizes, all different kinds of genres. There's some history, there's poetry, there's a lot of genealogies, and there's proverbs, all kinds of different types of literature. And they have been written over centuries by all kinds of different people. But however disparate they may seem to be, together they are leading to, they are illuminating, they are symbolizing Jesus. So for example, Romans 5.14 says, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. The first item is a type of the second Adam, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. Adam, by his obedience in the garden, should have brought eternal life for us. But he yielded to the devil and he ushered in death. Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness and by his obedience brought life. That almost slaying of Isaac by his father Abraham, it was foreshadowing the death of Jesus under the wrath of God the Father. Remember what Abraham told Isaac? God would provide a ransom. He did. Jesus was that ransom. Moses was the deliverer of God's people from slavery to Egypt. When Jesus is the greater Moses, 
He is the deliverer of God's people, God's elect from slavery to sin. That final plague of the firstborn's death, which then led to the Hebrews' redemption, that was signifying the death of God the Father's Son, which would bring redemption to his people. Jesus is the rock from which springs the water of eternal life, just like that rock that Moses struck in the wilderness, and for which that rock was a type. Jesus is the bread of life, he tells us, who come down out of heaven, he says, just like the manna. He is the true bread of heaven. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus, on the day of atonement, the day of atonement, the priest would have two goats, one that he would uh, sacrifice, put to death for the sins of the people. And then there was another, and he would lay his hand on that goat's head and say to him, here are the sins of the people. And that goat became a scapegoat and sent away into the wilderness to symbolize how Jesus has taken away our sins. Each king of Israel and of Judah prefigures the great king Jesus Christ. David prefigured the shepherd king. Solomon, the wise king. Or back up to Joshua. Joshua is just the Hebrew rendition name for the name Jesus. It's the same name. And just as that Joshua, that Jesus, led his people into the promised land, so has Jesus, our Jesus, led us. The history of Israel is the history of Jesus. Jesus came out of Egypt. He had to face the wilderness. He became the priest for the world that Israel was intended to be. When God told Abraham that through him the world shall be blessed, well, it is through Jesus that that blessing would take place. Adam to Noah to the patriarchs, to the judges and the the kings and priests and prophets, Jesus is prefigured. They are types for him. Or go through the exodus, through the law being given, through the temple rites and the sacrifices. They are demonstrating the need for Jesus and for in his work of redemption. They are foreshadowing him in his work. Jesus said, look to the sign of Jonah, and then you will know who I am and what will happen to me. You know that is how I will prove myself. He pointed to Moses raising the bronze serpent in the wilderness as a depiction of his atoning work on the cross. Well, am I in danger of information overload? Don't forget, the, you know, you can see the manuscript, go back home, and you can just read all of that. But there's so much more to tell. I'm just, I'm just, when I'm writing this, just writing the things off the top of my head. But you get the point. Jesus is the central character of the Bible, including the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, it's just kind of a, well, it's a collection of, Stories and there's some history and 
you know, the Psalms are pretty good. It makes me feel better and I can, I can get some good moral lessons. You're missing the point. You're missing the real story of the Old Testament. Think of it this way. The Holy Spirit is the real author of the Bible. He's like that ghostwriter who's really is the one who writes the autobiography of the celebrity. Now, the, the books, the different books may have the style of the human writer, but the inspiration and the message is coming from the Holy Spirit. And like all good writers, the Holy Spirit has a theme. Again, just looking at just regular writers, a writer will have typically a central character and a central idea that will tie the book together. A great writer will be able to weave that theme in a subtle way so that it takes several readings to get the full benefit and, and pleasure of it. I mean, you've had this experience. You've read books that, you know, you liked them, but you're not going to pick them up again. You already know the story. And then there are others you want to read it again. And each time you pick it up, you, you see something that you missed before. You know, now I see why, why that small event that seemed completely irrelevant was so significant. Now I understand how that, that character, who that character really represents, what, what worldview or what philosophy is coming out of this. And the more astute you become, as you read again and you pick up the themes and the symbols, the more delight you gain from the book. Well, so it is with the Bible. It is not a mere collection of mere stories, of mere history and poems and some proverbs here and scattering some laws here. They're all interconnected. They all develop significant themes. They all point to one significant person, Jesus Christ. And don't misunderstand one thing here. Finding Jesus in the Old Testament is not like finding Waldo. You know, those, you remember those books and you go through each page and you look and, oh, there's Waldo on that page and on that page. You see, Waldo, Waldo never changes. It's just still Waldo. It's kind of like Melchizedek. You don't know his origins. You don't know what happens to him. But with Jesus, when you find him in the pages of the Old Testament, you find something new about him. Something that adds to your understanding and your appreciation of him. That's what happened to our author. He found Jesus in this seemingly insignificant story of Abraham meeting some strange guy named Melchizedek. And already, as a result, we have learned more about Jesus. He's going to take us to another whole level of things to learn about Jesus as we continue on. But what I would just simply want to say to you now is this is one thing that you, yes, you should try at home. Read your Bible with the understanding that Jesus is the central figure. Pray for insight from the Holy Spirit because he is the author and then see what new delight you will receive 
as you find Jesus. We thank you, our God, for revealing to us our Lord Jesus Christ and the work of your spirit who reveals Jesus to us through the pages of the scripture. All the more, give us insight that we may read, that we may profit, grow, be all the more filled, be blessed, and seek to praise you and to bless you for all that we learn about our Redeemer and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing together, His mercy is more. of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.